Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for the privilege we have to be in your word. Um, You're such a good God. You're so gracious and kind. And um, I pray as we look in your word, you grant us great wisdom and understanding into what you intended and that we would listen to you. We would hear what you have to say concerning your son, Jesus, so that you would be greatly glorified in our response. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Well, if you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that this life of faith is uh, difficult. That uh, uh, we uh, enter into an eternal struggle uh, that won't end until the Lord defeats his enemies, and he will. And we know that uh, if we die, we go to be with the Lord and we have peace and we will be eventually glorified when he comes back for the church and we're raised. But uh, at this moment right now, this world is not very good. Things are not very good. Look at the politics. Look at uh, whatever it might be. Things are not good. And uh, we can be tempted to be discouraged as we follow Jesus we can even see persecution on the horizon as we look and see uh, Christians being beginning to be spoken of badly. You can see the seeds being laid forth for that. Well, the Lord Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I'm going to turn this off. (laughs) Get my glasses here. Excuse me. This air conditioner is too loud. Hopefully that will turn off in a minute. There we go. I think that'll be a little quieter for us. But we know it's difficult. It's a good fight of faith. That means there's a battle going on. And there's a battle to trust the Lord. There's a battle to obey the Lord. Uh, We are swimming upstream in a sense. You have the world, the flesh, and the devil certainly tempting us. And yet we have a great God. And if we keep our eyes focused on Him, we're going to do well. But sometimes we get distracted. And we've been going through the book of Colossians where we've seen the solution to the threats to the Colossians' faith as a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And today I wanted to uh, have us get a picture and a view of him from the Gospels that will help remind us of the God that we serve and follow. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17? And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Oh, that's great. That's a loud air conditioner. Wow, that's good. That's off. This one's not as bad. I like that one. That's not as... All right. But uh, we're going to get a view. We're going to get a view of the Lord that I think we need to see from Scripture because it can be very, very uh, difficult to fall in sometimes and we start to pull our eyes off Jesus. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. And we're going to see how we can follow Jesus in the midst of such great temptation and suffering. 
I want to share the context of the book of Matthew. We see King Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, he is God in human flesh. He has come to his own people who were sitting in darkness. And we see that he manifested the light and truth concerning their sinfulness and salvation through him and repentance and faith. Turn it down a little bit, Jim. And now it's been over two and a half years since Jesus began ministering. And within that time, the people have hardened their hearts. They've closed their eyes to the truth concerning the person of Christ. Uh, They are unrepentant, yet they are seeking to gain things from Jesus still. Yeah, you can rotate the main knob down there. Turn it down a little bit more. There we go. We're still adjusting everything. Keep going. Keep going. Can you still hear me? All right. Is that better? All right. (laughs) Okay. Well, it's been two and a half years since Jesus began ministering. And within that time, I said they've, I shared that they've hardened their hearts. And the religious leaders have desired to kill him. And Jesus would say about this unrepentant generation, they're an evil and adulterous generation. And we see that the Lord Jesus began to withdraw from teaching the multitudes to training his disciples instead. And in chapter 16, we have a turning point where the Lord Jesus, after revealing the wonderful truths concerning uh, the nature of his church, turned his attention to uh, of his disciples to the fact that he would be going to the cross to be crucified and then raised from the dead. Specifically, that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the religious rulers, and die and be raised on the third day. Then we see Peter uh, going from blessed, having declared the truth concerning Jesus, to satanic in just a second, telling the Lord, no, don't do that. Um, And indeed, he relied on his own wisdom and understanding and desire, man's ways, not God's ways. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And it was through this admonishment uh, we see that we need to pay close attention to the Word of God and not to our own wisdom and understanding. And then Jesus declared what his followers would expect to experience, what they need to give up in a sense if they wanted to come after him. Matthew 16:24. then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The reality that if you want to follow Jesus, you need to die to yourself, you need to give your life. But he's talking about our sinful lives, our lives of our own desires, our lives of our own fleshy, fleshy will, giving it up to follow him. And then he mentions an interesting statement. For, right after this, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. You need to give up your life and follow Jesus because God is going to judge. He's going to judge. He's going to come and judge. Recompense every man according to his deeds. And so we have the eternal paradox. Hold on to your sinful life, reject Christ and his offer of salvation, you'll lose your life. Or if you lose your life, giving it up by repenting and trusting in Christ, you gain eternal life. But when you do that, it's going to be difficult. The disciples understood that. They talked to the Lord, said, we've given up everything. 
It was difficult for them. They suffered. And if you're following Jesus, you're going to suffer too. I hate to say it, you're going to suffer. So how can we follow Jesus in the midst of such great temptation and suffering? Let's turn again to Matthew 17. And I want to read the last verse of Matthew 16 because that goes right into what we'll see today. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And they were coming... And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, this is a, a familiar passage. Got that right recording? Yeah. Now, this is a familiar passage that we have named and called the Transfiguration. Uh, it's found in Luke chapter 9 and also in Mark chapter 9. And as I mentioned earlier, I believe it's important for us to gain a picture of Jesus that is accurate. A picture of him that we see who we are following. Because as we are striving to obey him and going through the difficulties, we can effectively pull our eyes off of the Lord and forget. So now I believe the Lord gives this passage to encourage his disciples directly concerning his imminent death and resurrection and their own suffering of death, possibly for following him. So if you've repented of your sins, you've trusted in Christ, you desire to follow the Lord, how can we endure through such difficulty? Well, first of all, notice from our passage, I think we need to truly remember and know that Jesus is the king of glory. He's the king of glory. Notice Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John, and testified to by Moses and Elijah, and I believe to encourage his disciples. Again, verse 1, And six days later Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. So to remember the context here that uh, the Lord Jesus has mentioned something very important to the disciples. Back in chapter uh, 16, uh, he has predicted that he's going to die. He's going to go to the cross, right? And he says to some there, verse 28, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this statement here has caused all kinds of people 
to come up with all kinds of theologies that are, that are pretty messed up. If you read this verse by itself and you don't study the rest of Scripture, you could get bamboozled by people who would say, well, then they saw Christ coming, so his kingdom has already come. The second coming has already happened. They say, this is de- absolute proof, this verse. Because they would, ha- they would not, they would see him coming before they died, and they died, so he must have come, right? That's what they would say. But if we read the rest of the scripture, we're going to see that that's not the truth. Jesus, remember, he was talking, and let's look at the context, because this is helpful. He was talking about following him. He was talking about those who desire to follow him must be willing to give up their lives, denying self. And if you're unwilling to do so, if, if you're unredeemed, your sins are not forgiven, then you're going to experience judgment. Again, verse 26 in Matthew 16. For what will it be profited? Actually, I'll go back a little farther. Verse 24 again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Hey, here's the requirement. You're as good as dead. You're you're as good as crucified. Your life is over. Your old life is over. He says here, follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. That's the good part. When you lose your life, you get it all in Christ, right? You lose the horribly sinful, wicked life that we try to hold on to or we try to take back. And he says here, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole word forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is coming in glory is going to come in the glory of the Father with his angels and will recompense to every man according to his deeds. And then he says on the heels of that, Truly I say to you, there are some who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's the context. So then in chapter 17 we have a passage that appears to be unrelated in terms of the transfiguration. But I believe Jesus is saying, although you might suffer all the way to death, there are some here, and I believe speaking specifically of Peter, James, and John in context, who are not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, and then we have the passage. That's the context. So even though the verse in the last verse of 16 is difficult to interpret, It's my belief he is pointing to the transfiguration where Jesus was glorified in front of them, as we'll say. Not that he would come physically, visibly, like he will. They were going to get a glimpse of what it would be like, but that's not his second coming. That has not happened yet. So then, he points to this passage here. So I believe he's going to give them a taste of his kingdom glory. You want to see what Jesus is going to be like in the kingdom? Here you go. When he comes uh, in his kingdom, before, and they're going to get a taste of that before they die. Indeed, Luke, describing the transfiguration this way, says it this way, Luke 9.27. You can kind of put your finger in Luke 9 also, because we'll go there a little bit. He says, but I say to you truthfully... 9.27, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place. 
It's not a, a, a place where you go. It is the sphere of the king. The kingdom of God is wrapped up in King Jesus. When you see him, you've seen the kingdom. He is the king. And it is all related to him. It's all related to him. So if you're still hung up on the term coming in his kingdom, um, then we need to look even look at him further into the New Testament. Turn to Second Peter. And I read this at our offering time, but this also helps us understand this event is not uh, his coming. Second Peter 1.13, Peter says, And I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. He said this twice now. Peter's like, ah, it's right to remind you. It's okay. He says here, Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, he's going to die, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I also, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. I'm going to remind you so that you can be reminded yourself. You can call them to mind. And he says here, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. Obviously, there were the bad guys, the false teachers. He's going to talk about those in chapter 2, false prophets and false teachers. They've got these pretty fantastic tales of stuff that have gone on concerning God and whatever. He's saying, hey, we didn't follow cleverly devised Tales, he says here, uh, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he phrases it. He says here, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance and made from heaven and we're with him on the holy mountain. So that's what that passage is talking about. It is a preview of King Jesus in his glory. The way he will appear when he comes in his kingdom glory. It's, they got a tremendous advanced picture of that to encourage them. You see, they've been following Jesus, uh, God who took on human flesh, who humbled himself. Um, who did the miracles by the power of the Spirit, affirmed who he was, but he was totally dependent on the Father. God the Son, uh, nothing sparkly about him, no, no deity flashing, you know. Um, and he's telling them he's going to go die. And they need to be encouraged that this one who's telling them who's going to die and rise from the dead is going to come in his glory. This is the Jesus you're really following. This is the Jesus. To get an unveiled picture of him. And we need to get that in our minds also, in our hearts, from the Word of God. So let's take a look at this wonderful preview, and I believe it's an encouragement, not just for them, but for us. Verse 1, And six days later Jesus took, this is chapter 17, Matthew, Peter took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. So Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, that's in the northwest area of Galilee, and now he's on his way to Jerusalem via Capernaum. And uh, although some people think they know what mountain this is, we really don't know what mountain it is. It just says a high mountain. A high mountain. And so then he takes these three prominent yet, uh, 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 yet among equal disciples. Disciples were equal, but yet there are three who are prominent here in a sense. And I think it's going to be clear why he only brings three in a minute. 
So at this point, we have it says after six days. Now, you go, wait a second. Luke 9.28 says after eight days. And I was watching the History Channel, and they said the Bible's not true because one says six and one says eight. And you go, wait a second. What's going on here? Well, non-believing scholars take God's word and twist it to their own destruction. Uh, God's word is absolutely accurate. And if we look at this and understand this, in Luke chapter 9.28, he says, and some eight days after these things. He knows he says not and eight days. He says, and some. And this term some, translated in the NSB, is actually an adverb when in relationship to numbers it means about or nearby. And so you could say it's not speaking of exactness, but approximateness. And it's thought that Matthew is speaking of full Jewish days, and Luke is speaking of full days and partial days, which would make eight. Makes sense to me. God's word is absolutely accurate. So don't let those evil men on TV bamboozle you. Turn it off when they start talking. When non-believers talk about the Bible, turn it off. You know, you hear these guys on the radio that are Jewish are telling you about the Bible. Hey, this is not a believer. Turn it off. It's teaching the Bible. It's false. Okay, turn it off. Turn it off. Okay, so here, notice he's transfigured. Uh, Verse 1, And six days later Jesus took up with him Peter, James, and John, and he brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. That's pretty white. And evidently, Peter and everyone else got a little sleepy, except Jesus. Uh, Look at Luke chapter 9. Let's go back. As I mentioned, we'll be going back and forth here. Um, Luke chapter 9 points out, first of all, they went up to pray, by the way. That was the context. Luke 9, and some eight days later, verse 28, after these sayings, it came about that he took along Peter, James, and John. They went up to the mountain to pray. To pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory... We're speaking of his departure, which, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. You know that. You're praying, someone's praying. Now this is the Lord praying perfectly, but they're tired and they dozed off, right? They dozed off. And he says here, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. Middle 32, they saw his Glory. They saw his glory. That's what's going on here. Jesus is praying. The disciples have fallen asleep and he was changed before them. Our text says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. White as light. The term transfigured, metamorpho. Uh, speaks of a transformation or transfiguration. Jesus uh, had been before them in his humanity, but at this point his glory was revealed. He was transformed into kingdom glory. 
For almost 33 years, what people saw physically was only the humanity of Christ. Yes, they saw him do the deeds of deity, but he was physically in their presence. He was a carpenter, nothing special to look upon. Isaiah 53, who has believed our message, to whom has the strong arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor an appearance that we should be attracted to him. Just a human being, nothing special, at least. But we know that it was God that took on human flesh. And so for the first time and the only time before the cross, the Lord Jesus removed the veil and the disciples saw, physically speaking, with their eyes that he was God. They saw him in his glory. His glory was revealed. He was transformed into kingdom glory. Interesting note, this same word transformed is what happens when we renew our minds, Romans 12, 2. When we renew our minds, we are transformed. We're transformed. So notice what our text says. And his face shone like the sun. Have you ever looked at the sun? Can't look too long, right? You better get some sunglasses on, right? You can't stare at the sun very long. If you do, you're going to burn your eyes out, right? As it says here, like the sun. And the text says his garments became white as light. And I like this in Mark 9, 3. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. <laughs> no one could get it that clean. No one could get it that white. That is some laundry detergent, right? Well, we know that he's perfectly holy, right? And he's revealing his glory, revealing his glory. So shining, so dazzling, Jesus glorified God in human flesh, but glorified in front of him, appearing in his glory. The reality is we know from Scripture that God took on human flesh, and for a period of time, he veiled his glory. In him, we'll see in Colossians, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Although he didn't, although he was God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we see this. We see God took on human flesh in the beginning. John 1, 1 was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here, God the Son is giving them a glimpse into who he really is, his full nature. Yes, he took on human flesh, but he's God. And we see God in his glory. So here, the encouragement is obvious. Encouragement is obvious for Peter, James, and John, and for us. You know, Jesus had told them six days earlier that he was going to be delivered up to the hands of the religious rulers, suffer many things, die, and be raised on the third day. And he has told them that they need to give up their lives to follow him, pick up their crosses, which speaks of suffering and dying and denying themselves. In the midst of this, they needed a glimpse of who they're really following the King of glory. And brother and sister, we need to get a glimpse of our Savior. Yes, humble, took on human flesh, gracious. Uh, John leaned on his breast. We, gracious God, kind, merciful, but yet God. Uh, and the love of Christ, if we would know the love of Christ, which is incomprehensible, but he's still God. He's going to come back in his glory. He's the one we're following. We have all this trouble right now, all this trouble. We get our eyes off Jesus. We start to sink 
who start to sink. So then, these disciples needed a glimpse. And six days, first one of chapter 17, Jesus, later Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and his brother and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as visible. Became, excuse me, garments became white as light. Sometimes we can forget who we're following, who we are abiding in, who we are to focus on, the God of the universe, the glorious King. King Jesus, who took on human flesh, veiled his glory, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. And this same King gave the disciples a glimpse of his glory, and us by faith. You see, there's the sufferings for the glories to follow. Second Corinthians chapter four, Turner, Second Corinthians four. Verse sixteen. Paul's been talking about the reality that they're almost dying as their as their servant Christ, but it's for the benefit of the of the Corinthians. And he says in Second Corinthians four sixteen, I love this passage. This is truly the mindset of a believer walking with the Lord, by the way. Therefore we do not lose heart. 416, 2 Corinthians. But though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, and heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's mind-blowing. Glorified with him. Paul says, for I consider, i got to think through it logically, the word means to add up numbers, basically it's a counting term. I consider... On the board, on the board, on the scoreboard, the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. We start to say, oh, I'm, this is happening here. Oh, this is happening. Oh. God's, God's very gracious. He's kind. He's merciful. He's gentle. But he wants us to see things rightly. He wants us to see him rightly. When I see him rightly, I don't need to worry about anything. When I see Jesus rightly, I just thank him and bring those cares to him, casting my cares upon him. Lord Jesus, you're in charge of it all. You hold it together. I can't do this. I'm casting upon you. You got it, Lord. You got it. I trust you. First John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we shall be. We are this group of ragtag rejects that, that, that are so unable to do anything. We have to depend on our Lord, and he works through us. And he does his will through, through the things that are not, that he would nullify the things that are. But yet we who are not are going to be glorified. He says here, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Wow. Because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just to see his pure. One last passage I want to read about glory. Turn to Philippians three seventeen. 
We've got to get glory in our brains, okay? We've got to get uh, focus on Jesus and what he's doing and what's going to happen for us because this life is temporal and the things that happen to us are so temporal. And yet we have a compassionate God who enters in, who loves us, who will come on our side and help us in those areas. The things that we might say, oh, it's so small in your sight. Well, he, he cares. Cast your cares upon him for he cares. Use. He cares about those things. He wants you to cast on him because he can deal with it. The Lord of glory can deal with it. We can't. Philippians 3.17 Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And he's going to say, here's the bad pattern. Don't do this. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Yikes. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite. Or that's their desires. Um, he says whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Brothers and sisters, stop setting your minds on what's going on in the earthly sphere. Take those things and bring them into the heavenly sphere. Yes, they're there, they're true, but it's not the full picture. And so these guys here, he says, for our citizenship is from heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power which he has even to subject all things to himself. We're going to be transformed. He transformed. So Jesus Christ was transfigured before them. They saw who he truly was in terms of his, uh, his glory. He was glorified in their presence. And he will, by his power, finish and glorify us. He'll finish the job. The Jesus you follow is God, and the disciples got a glimpse of his glory, and we have a glimpse by faith. By faith. So back to our passage. Notice what happens next. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus, affirming and testifying to him going to the cross, by the way. Verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared with to them, talking with him. They're not talking to Peter and John and James. Talking with him, that's Jesus. Now, before we get into the discussion between Moses and Elijah, we have to ask the question, why do you think he has Moses and Elijah up here with him? Why would that be? I think the answer might be pretty clear to a Jew. You see, Moses was the human being God inspired by his spirit to bring forth his law, and Elijah was the most prominent of the prophets. Uh, very clearly, the scripture testifies to his prominence, uh, being that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for Christ. And so I believe we have a representation, a visible representation, through these true, real guys, Moses and Elijah, visible testimony, but of what? It says they appeared talking to him. And what was that testimony? What did the law and the prophets uh, uh, testify of? What do they testify of? Well, what we know what they're talking about, actually. Look, turn to Luke chapter 9. We actually know what they're talking about. And notice how Luke says, Behold, two men were talking to him, and they were Moses and Elijah. Still men, didn't change. They went to the Lord, but they're still men, right? Went to the Lord, who appeared in glory, speaking of his, were, were they were these two men, Moses and Elijah, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking about 
Him dying on the cross and rising from the dead. They're talking about His departure. What He would accomplish through His death and resurrection. You remember from Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, from that time on, Jesus Christ began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the, from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And so I believe God is making the very visible point to Peter, James, and John that the law and the prophets personified by Moses and Elijah point to the reality that Jesus would go to the cross and die for our sins and be raised. Is this what Jesus did on the day when he rose from the dead? When he spoke to his uh, dejected disciples walking away on the road to Emmaus? Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Certainly the Old Testament testifies of the sufferings and the glories of Christ. And we have Moses and Elijah talking about it with Jesus there. Very interesting. We know Isaiah 53 talks about the fact that he was pierced through for our transgressions. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, right? We know in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, as to this salvation, this great salvation, Jesus Christ, Peter writes, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We know that God clearly laid forth in the Old Testament uh, in seed form that his son would need to die. The sufferings for the glories to follow. So then we have the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory being testified to by Moses and Elijah concerning his death, which he would accomplish, and his resurrection. Um, but remember, uh, Peter had missed it earlier. Peter had blown it. He had uh, said, forbid, Lord forbid you that happen. Don't, I don't want that to happen to you. And Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. You see, uh, his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, were what they were talking about. What Jesus would do for you and I. For you and I. There are the sufferings before the glories follow. And our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, whom we follow, the King of glory, uh, is an example of that. Sufferings for the glories to follow. Who are you denying yourself for? Who are you picking up your cross for? Who are you following? Is it God in human flesh, the glorified Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory? Sometimes we, practically speaking, forget who we're following because we don't trust Him the way we should. We need to get a glimpse of who He is and what He's done. For 33 years, what people saw was the humanity of Christ. He was a carpenter, Nothing special physically speaking, although God performed miracles to him to prove who he was and who he said he was. But when the Lord Jesus removed the veil, we saw him physically that he was God and they saw his glory. So don't be discouraged. You're following the Lord of glory who will come in glory. And this is a preview of what would happen later on in Matthew 24 and 25. Turn there, Matthew 24. 
Jesus makes it clear it is immediately after the tribulation. You say, I don't believe in a tribulation. Well, it says tribulation there. And it says immediately after the tribulation. He says here, this is when the Lord's going to come, immediately after the tribulation. This is when his second coming is. It's very clear. That's the second coming in judgment. He came first in grace. Now, he's going to come for his church. We know that, First Thessalonians 4. But his second coming here, we see here, uh, Matthew 24, verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Sounds like everybody's seen him. You know, not like the fakers and the bad guys and the, the deceivers who say this has already happened because of the passage we're studying, which they misinterpret. It hasn't already happened. He says here, and, and the Son of Man will appear, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He's going to look just like he looked on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 25, 31, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he comes. Take back what is rightfully his. So again, why would he allow Peter, James, and John to see him in this glorified state? I believe clearly Jesus wanted to encourage them in spite of how things appeared in that moment. Things, physically speaking, didn't appear too good. They followed Jesus for three years and he's telling them, I'm going to go die. They didn't get it totally. It didn't appear very good. It didn't appear very good. But he wanted them to see him in his glorified state to encourage them. Because in spite of how they appear, this is the reality behind it. And that's what we need to see. In spite of how things appear from our perspective, it's not the full reality. It should be encouraging to us because following Christ is difficult. The good fight of faith is difficult. But we're following a great God who is glorified now and he will glorify us. 2 Timothy 2.11, it's a trustworthy statement. For if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. We need to take the mindset of the Apostle Paul. I consider the sufferings of this present time not to be worthy of the glory to be revealed. Glory is our destiny. Because of the glorious Christ, the Son of God who died for our sins. So when it's too difficult, get your eyes off of the difficulty and onto your glorious Savior through the Word of God. So first of all, we need to remember that the Jesus we follow is the King of glory. But secondly, we're not, we're not to be sidetracked by our own wisdom. Sometimes we can immediately go the wrong way. Notice back in our passage, verse 4, And Peter said and answered, answered and said to him, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <laughs> if you've read the other passages, you know why I'm laughing. While he was still standing there, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. So at this point, we might think Peter's kind of lost a little bit, and, and he sort of has. In Luke chapter 9.33 uh, says, and it came about as, as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. 
let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't get it. Now, it was probably around the time of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was that which was in remembrance of the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. And Peter's trying to do a nice, good religious thing here. But it's not about the Feast of Booths. It's about our deliverance through Jesus Christ by his death and resurrection. It's Peter not knowing what he was saying. Let's do this for you three. That's a problem here because the focus is not Moses and Elijah. You see, at this point, God terrifyingly reproves Peter from heaven, pointing out who his focus should be on. While he was still speaking, he's in the middle of this little statement about uh, tabernacles. A bright cloud, behold, behold, take a look, a bright cloud overshadowed them, behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with Moses and Elijah. No, <laughs> this is my beloved son who, through whom I am well pleased. Listen to Moses and Elijah. No, listen to him. Now, Moses and Elijah do speak of him, but here we need to listen to Jesus. He's reproved. Peter, you got it all wrong. It's not about Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. It's about Jesus, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Luke 9.34, And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So he's saying, let's build three tabernacles, one for you. The cloud's building, you know, all around him, you know, and... All of a sudden, boom, the voice, right? Talks about seeing the majestic glory, right? In first, first, second Peter 1. So they were terrified. Verse 6. Disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Peter is told who he should be focused on. This is my beloved son, the voice came out of the cloud, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. God is well pleased with Jesus. We trust in him. He's pleased in us. Apart from faith, he can't please God. He's well pleased with Jesus. And this is an emphatic command. Listen to him. You know, we can get religiously distracted. We can. You might be in all over the place and claim to follow Jesus, yet you're never in the Word. You're not listening to him. you got all kinds of other stuff going on. Listen to Jesus. Maybe you're all caught up in all kinds of doctrine. Everything is this and that, and election this and that. Whatever it is, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And how do we listen to him? Through the Word of God. Proverbs 9, 8, 29, 8, excuse me, 28, 9. He who turns his, way, turns his ear away from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. There's some of you that are still looking at Moses, Elijah, and Christ. You get all three in the same level of focus. You're not seeing what Moses and Elijah are saying, pointing to Christ and looking at him. You're looking at all three. You're all caught up in some doctrinal sidetrack rather than a focus on Jesus Christ. You focus on him. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Observe all he said. Do all he said. See, the problem that we have, and every problem we have in this life, when it becomes difficult and it becomes unbearable, is when our eyes are off Jesus. 
when our eyes are on to our issues. We need to set our focus on the Lord Jesus through his word. And indeed, the church has a listening problem. We need to, we need to allow God's word to transform our minds. Romans 12, uh, we're to uh, be, not be conformed to this word, but transformed through the renewing of our minds. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Joshua 1, 6. Let's turn to Joshua 1, 6. When we're going through the battles, Joshua sure did, didn't he? When we're going through the battles, we've got to have our focus right. Got our focus right. Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people the possession of the land which I swore to your fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, but do all careful to do according to all the law of Moses which my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you shall be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Don't tremble or be dismayed, brothers and sisters. He's with you wherever you go. Just wherever you go. The church these days has a listening problem, listening to everything but what God says in his word, but we are not to be that way. He said, listen to him. Are you listening? Are you listening when it comes to how you should be at your work? Are you listening in terms of how you should be in your marriages? Are you listening about how you should be in concerning your attitudes? Are you listening? Are you listening? So then what happens at this point? They fell on their faces and they're much afraid. And notice verse 7 back in our passage. Jesus came up and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. Isn't that great? That's wonderful. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. That's what we need to see. So how did they respond to the Father's voice? They were afraid. They were scared out of their wits. But Jesus uh, told them not to be afraid. What a gracious God. So instead of being afraid of the things that are going on these days, we need to be listening to him. Listening to him. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself. We need to get Jesus in our sights through the word of God. Now, as we finish, notice uh, at this point Jesus gives them a command here. And when they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell no one the vision until you till the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And guess what? They obeyed. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing about Peter. I want to give him credit. Um, he was demanding earlier with the Lord Jesus, hey, don't forbid, Lord forbid you go to the cross, right? And the Lord rebuked him. Here, he said, he suggested it. So he's doing better, right? He was still wrong. He's doing better. I, just want to, I want to point that out. So back, back to our passage. So... Uh, says, tell no one the vision, tell the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And guess what? They listened to Jesus. 
They did. They obeyed. Notice what it says. Verse 36 of Luke Luke 9, 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. They obeyed. They get it. They got it. They listened. So my question, brothers and sisters, are you seizing upon his words? Are you taking them and making them great in your heart and mind? Are they elevated above your fears and your concerns and your worries and your thoughts? The Jesus we follow is the King of glory, and he will come back for us. He will judge unbelievers, and we, his children, will be made like him and glorified. Folks, it's very easy to get discouraged, but we're in the good fight of faith. It can be difficult to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of all these things. So how can we keep them on him? First of all, we need to remember who we are following, the Lord of glory. And remember that he will come someday. And secondly, we need to listen to him. So what are the applications? First and foremost, foremost, Jesus Christ coming again to judge the world. He's coming in glory. Right? He's the Lord of glory. And for any of you that don't know Christ, uh, you should be terrified of the thought of dying and entering his presence uh, in your sin and being cast into the lake of fire after being judged. You should be terrified. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but those who can, but him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Be terrified. You should run to Jesus and repent of your sin and believe in what he's done for you. What about us, brothers and sisters? Have we lost our view of Christ? Has he become obscured? Has he been demoted in our minds? Uh, we've been seeing in Colossians that he is the God who holds all things together. He created all things. He's the head of the church, the new creation. He's also the one who brought about the whole, the, 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 the first creation. Have you lowered him down? Are you, are you squandering in your prayers as though he's some half God or something? He is God and he holds all things together. We need to get our eyes back on him rightly. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and forgive us. We do get distracted. We do get pulled away. And Lord, you're so gentle and gracious to redirect us back to your son, Jesus. Help us to stay focused on him, Lord. I pray for... Anyone here who knows there's areas in their life they've just pulled their eyes off of Jesus, whether it's physical or whatever it might be, Lord God, I pray that those eyes will be set back on him and they would listen to him, that we all would. Lord, thank you that uh, we will be like him when we see him as he is. Lord, our future is, is eternal future is tremendous. Help us to see the temporal and light of eternity. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Sing praise him.